Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Okay. Today, we are speaking with Ekaterina Grigoriev. Ekaterina is one of the most experienced international experts in ESG integration and sustainable finance with a track record of 15 years. She's an environment and social development specialist and is the global lead in the financial sector at the World Bank. The World Bank provides low-interest loans, interest-free credits, and grants to developing countries for a wide array of purposes that include investments in education, health, public administration, infrastructure, finance, and private sector development, agriculture, and environmental and natural resource management. Currently, she serves as the World Bank Global Lead for Design and Implementation of Environmental and Social Risk Management Systems and Investment Operations involving the financial and private sector. Her work has ensured full integration of environmental and social sustainability in 100 national and regional leading operations in the range of 400 to $600 million across financial products from large project and corporate finance to SME and microfinance lending. She joined the World Bank in 2005 as a specialist in sustainability markets with the International Finance Corporation. She has led substantial global innovation in frontier areas of sustainable finance, such as natural capital, climate, sustainable agriculture, and supply chains. As one of the core experts that formulated global influential standards on environmental and social sustainability in finance for IFC performance standards and the World's Bank Environmental and Social Framework. She earned a PhD in economics and an MBA from the University of Ottawa and has two degrees, business studies and computer sciences from Uppsala University. Ektrina, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Happy to be here. Yeah, great to be talking to you. That's an impressive bio, but I'm curious, how did you arrive here? How did you get into this field? Well, I, I think I had the same thought once when I was... Uh, plummeting through Nigeria in the rural areas with about 20 Nigerian men and a full contingent of police behind us torn to their teeth. And I was thinking to myself, how did I get here? But it's been an interesting journey. I've been in the field for about 20 years, I think. And I was just looking to, I was looking to be an international development specialist. And um, when I was in Canada doing my studies, I was just exploring things. And then I got just bit lucky, I think. And I, I came into this nexus of sustainability and finance right away. And International Finance Corporation got interested in, uh, in my background and my studies. And I got into a, what they called uh, sustainable leaders for the future. And it was uh, sponsored by the Canadian government. And that's how I got started. And then right away, this field was still nascent, but developing really fast. And I just stayed. I got so fascinated in what was happening there and uh, what we were doing how we were trying to change finance and make it support the better world environmentally and socially. And 
I've been doing that ever since. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit about how you arrived at the World Bank. I know I just read it, but I just I want to hear your words. I started at our private sector arm, which is International Finance Corporation. And then a few years later, I came to the main World Bank. We are divided into different sections. One is the private sector arm, the IFC. Then the main World Bank, IBRD. We have the multilateral guarantee agency, MIGA, and a few other different divisions. So I just um, switched between some of them. But basically, I've been with the World Bank group my entire career since ever since I started as an intern. The World Bank, it states that they're, with their mission, they have two goals, to end extreme poverty, number one, and number two, to promote shared prosperity in a sustainable way. I love that. Tell our listeners a little bit about the World Bank who may not be familiar with it. And when you talk about the World Bank, how do you describe it and typically characterize it to somebody that's not familiar with it? Um, well, I, sometimes indeed I, um, I see people who are not familiar with the World Bank and how I would describe it. It's basically the first global development financier founded by all major governments in the world who are our shareholders. It basically was founded first to rebuild Europe. You rebuild Europe after World War II. So they actually, they think not even people familiar with the World Bank might not know that that fact that initially this was the purpose of of, um, of the organization to rebuild Europe. And then um, things changed. Europe was rebuilt, and I guess um, a new purpose was established to extend that development and prosperity to the whole world, to the developing world. And the mission grew, and, and the setup changed. And here we are today the largest financier of development in the world and the largest supporter of the climate change financing and a lot of um, good things that have been done. Wow. And just so we can help a little better contextualize what the World Bank does, what are some of the products? Just name me some of the product and service. that. Just a few examples. Well, I'm not sure I'm the right person to talk about that because that's not what I do within the World Bank. But there's all kinds of things. It's It's mostly loans to the governments. But like I said, we have a private sector arm, the International Finance Corporation. That arm lends to companies, to companies and financial institutions um, in developing countries, and also does equity. So let me go somewhere else. I don't know you, but I get a sense you're very passionate about your work. What are you really passionate about? Making the world a better place, I guess. <laughs> Development does that to you, when, especially when you get to go places and say things and talk to real people and touch real projects that you're working on and, and see how things change. So this is really something that I inspire you to, to be a better person yourself. And you meet so many different people. You learn from them and from so many different cultures. And, and the things you learn from them sometimes really surprise you. So that's really what's inspiring me to be who I am today. And I'm just curious. Keeping a positive mindset in the face of so many challenges in the world today. How do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the only way to be. Yeah. If you don't keep a positive mindset with everything that's happening, everything that you see, then you just fail. Fail as an individual, fail as a professional. So there's no, basically no other choice I see in life other than keeping a positive mindset. Right. And I guess also viewing that you have to have failures before you have success. 
that you have to keep pushing for the positive and keep pushing and believing that the end will not be a failure. I read an article that you co-authored, Changing Finance to Catalyze Transformation, How Financial Institutions Can Accelerate the Transition to an Environmentally Sustainable Economy. And I guess this was done through the United Nations Environmental Program and Global Environment Outlook. It's a publication that looks ahead towards the next frontiers for the financial sector and embracing sustainable finance as the only way to be doing business. I love that. You covered a lot of ground. It states the financial sector has a central role to play in addressing global environmental and social crisis. It identifies six key factors. I would love to talk about a little bit about them, have our audience hear about these important factors. Thanks for mentioning that. This was a great collaboration. And it wasn't just me who who participated in this process. And I work with several amazing colleagues. And generally, as a professional, I've had very long-standing collaboration with the United Nations Environmental Program and especially their finance initiative. And that's who spearheaded this particular publication. They're doing amazing work with the financial sector, with all the major banks and investors and trying to promote environmental and social sustainability. So this brief was part of that long-standing, like multi-year effort that they're doing. And I was really happy to take part in that humbly, very humbly. So um, it, this brief basically was meant to educate broader audience, I think, first of all, on how finance can change the world for the better and then spearhead as um, environmental and social change in the private sector, as well as maybe public sector. And this is actually how this brief is uh, looking both backwards and forwards on how the sustainability started in the financial sector a couple of decades ago. And we started with the premise that um, finance plays a great role in channeling resources of companies especially companies and other entities towards more sustainable behaviors, more sustainable outputs. And as I like to say, sometimes I do a lot of trainings for financial sector and sustainability for banks, for for our clients, for others. And as I'd like to say during those trainings is um, he who has the gold makes the rules. Sometimes it causes a smile, but this is very true because this is what lies in in the... um, Essentially, this is what lies uh, within the power of the financial sector to influence change, is that they have the power to land where they feel it matters and choose to land where there are more environmentally and socially sustainable outcomes. And that does shift the paradigm within the global, basically, um, world of companies, world of producers and and providers of services and, and things like that towards towards more sustainable outcomes. And then um, this premise was developed probably a couple of decades ago and then it grew into something that we see today, which is all-encompassing ESG in every portion of our life. And we see the financial sector now fully embracing it. And I'm so glad to see it after a couple of decades of work that we put in with my very good colleagues into this. But um, since I was part of that field from the beginning, it's really gratifying to see where we are now. One of the key factors that it states talks about transparency and accountability for the environmental impacts. I would imagine that's critically important when we're talking about monies and financing and there should be goals 
to be had. But I really don't know how that works. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, transparency and accountability is one thing that everybody talks about. And um, I feel we talk about it a lot because it may be the lowest hanging fruit out there. So why don't we why don't we start with disclosures? Why don't we start with having companies put out sustainability reports and participate in the ESG ratings and be more open about what they do in, in the ESG space and how they deliver against the promises they made, maybe. But at the same time, it's not the beginning of the cycle to me that starts the change for them. It's maybe the end of the cycle when you have to report on what you've done and then be transparent on what you've done. So a lot of this starts somewhere else to me. And then you then you come to reporting, then you come to be evaluated through HG ratings or other tools that are, by the way, now being <laughs> widely criticized. I see a lot of critique, I mean, towards ESG ratings these days. So to me, financing, supporting companies, financial institutions, this whole corporate world in accelerating internal change before they are pushed towards reporting and disclosures is probably very essential because disclosure is not I don't think disclosure is going to solve the issues. Right. It's just along. So no, to me, yeah. to me it's sort of everybody jumps on it because it's the easiest thing to do and try to quantify things, trying to slot things into like little different buckets. It's not that difficult, to be honest, but to accelerate the actual change that leads to more sustainable outcomes is a much more difficult thing. I see people shy away from that a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting because in the article, one of the factors that you also mentioned was this transformational leadership and how it's needed to embed sustainability and governance and incentives and skills and resources and culture across operations. And that, with our work, we are also involved with taking corporate values, brand values, and trying to help companies align their cultures and behaviors with those, that to me is, we know how hard that is to really achieve. And I get it when you say transparency and accountability, if they got the transformational leadership and really had it embedded in their governance and incentives and culture, they maybe wouldn't be so resistant to full disclosure. (laughs) So I thought that was very interesting that you mentioned that. And also how the leadership, what do you feel? Do you feel positive about there that the transformational leadership is becoming more common? I felt more positive, to be honest, about it maybe a year ago because the ESG was really up and coming and then it was developing and growing like a snowball and everybody was interested, everybody wanted to be part of it. But a few months ago, literally less than a year ago, I think there's a new trend. There is a new trend which is labeled now to be a backlash against ESG. This is very interesting. This is very new, in some ways surprising, but there is a lot, there is a lot happening in the global community. There is a lot of discussions about ESG. And while like over the past couple of decades, the outlook on ESG has been mostly positive and everybody was supportive, everybody wanted to be part of this. Now I see a lot of people, among them politicians, really criticizing the field. Yeah. And, and uh, just today I read an article, I don't remember who, but one of the, um, I think, prospective senators in the U.S., 
is openly criticizing ESG and going in so far as saying that we have to ban ESG ratings and then saying that this is shorting our economy and then other things like that. So now I guess we've come to a critical time in the history of ESG, I guess, as a field that will probably make or break how it goes forward. Yeah, I'd, unfortunately... it's going to make it better because um, the attention and criticism where it matters in the field that's hopefully strong enough to um, survive and sustain this criticism, just transform itself to be even better than it is right now, fix some of the rough edges and go forward even stronger. So my hope is that. But I feel like we're in a very critical juncture right now for, for the field. Well, I agree with you. And unfortunately, it's being very politicized. And the whole notion that we're talking around sustainability and ESG, that's a very long-term view. And I think too many people are concerned about short-term thinking around that. But it's also people are using this as a divisive weapon and it need not be. And I think it will, in the long run, it's going to make it only stronger, the importance of it. I hope so, because I think that people are feeling, especially with climate change, I mean, they really are feeling it on a personal level that things are changing. And that when politicians, I just read an article this morning, Gary and I just read an article about woke capitalism, which is what you're this sort of strain against against the conscious capitalism. But ESG was way before all of that, too, before it became popular. So eventually it comes back down to the specifics and the reality. And the reality is that generation of food, uh, management of risks with national disasters and emergency crises within a company can change a company's future overnight is becoming more and more real to people because they're seeing it. They're seeing it in communities. So they can try to politicize it and come up with ways to criticize, but the reality is more and more people, especially like, for instance, in the United States, a place where maybe there would be a lot of people who would feel that way in Joe Manchin's state that's very heavily into fossil fuels, Kentucky, that just wiped out communities with a, a flood like they've never had before that has just wiped, wiped it off the map. So he can say anything he wants, but those people know the reality of what's going on. I agree. So hopefully to me, um, what's happening right now is a sign of ESG gaining a real importance. Because before the two decades ago, like I have this benefit of looking at it <laughs> through the historical lens of being part of the field for so long. But then nobody took us seriously, to be honest. But he really took us seriously within the financial sector, saying, you know, this is good to have, nice to do, and like it's this warm and fuzzy thing that, that can be put on the wall and, and we are proud that we're doing I think so something great. beautiful. But now, once we started toying with materiality of ESG and then started to incorporate it into company valuation, and it started to affect 
really started to affect the bottom line in real ways. And, and um, people are using ESG factors for stock selection. And it's been applied in so many different ways now that are more meaningful. And that's what we wanted to see. But that means it also touches finance in a very real way and, and affects the bottom line calculations. And then your interests of different people and different functions become factored into this discussion. And then you have some Interesting opinions coming out of that, let me put it this way. Yes. Because it, it's, it's real. Like you said, it, it's become real. It's become monetarily real. It, it became monetized. ESG was never monetized until just maybe even less than five years ago. I agree. It started to get really monetized now. And then, and then people walk up and, and some yeah, of them and have, I, have different views on De-risking investments I saw as really the turning moment where they started to realize that ESG wasn't just about not funding oil or not funding CSR funds in the past 10 years ago, where you didn't want to invest in cigarette companies or whatever. But when it moved to de-risking the investment is when I think the CFOs and CEOs and C-suite people in companies started to pay attention. Gary and I, I mean, in our work as working with and reports for years, we were in the rooms when we used to see CEOs and CFOs laugh off ESG concerns 15, 20 years ago. And look at them now. Now it's becoming, it's the thing that's taken the silos out of companies and it gets everyone coordinated on the same page, sitting at the table from HR to CFOs to sustainability experts to that they're all corporate communications. They're all a part of this now because it is such an important criteria for investing. This is always the starting point that we always gave as sustainable finance professionals to the financial sector when trying to educate them. And most of the time you have to realize I work with the financial sectors in countries which haven't been exposed to ESG. Like I try to be part and I'm very embedded in the sustainable finance community globally with the big players and learn from them. But where I work in a lot of instances, those financial sectors have not been exposed to this. So the first message we give them when trying to build their capacity and awareness is, you know, why why ESG is a risk to you? Why is ESG a risk to you? Why should you care? And how it helps it, how it helps your bottom line. So that's how we're trying to advocate for it. But at the same time, it does take, like we were just discussing efforts and, and yes, some investments to make that happen, to make that change. So ESG is not free, I would say. If you're no. taking this really seriously, then that's what I think is causing contentions now because the reality of things is that if you want to do it properly, it costs. Yes, me, there is like a lot of models and things and initiatives that are trying to figure out cost-effective and profitable even ways to manage this. But when it comes to risk, especially when it comes to risk, it really requires an investment to get there. I'm going to jump to an article you wrote for Cefpro. Understanding data requirements and other elements to mitigate greenwashing risk. And there was a question in that article, and I'd, I'd like to ask you this question. How can we better define greenwashing? 
Well, I believe what I said there, maybe not in these exact terms, but I don't think I like the term brainwashing itself because it kind of makes you think about like a bunch of people in the boardroom, like evil plotting, of how, how can we misrepresent ourselves? <laughs> how can we fabricate some numbers to become more green and seem more green? I don't think most people are doing that, honestly. So this is what I think most people would think about when they hear a term greenwashing. I don't think this is the reality of things. I was thinking about maybe two things that are happening. Mostly one, we were just discussing just now how ESG materially affects the companies and uh, there's like a bit of a clash of interest within them and they're trying their best, honestly, to, to have both ends meet. And the second thing is, I think because the field was so attractive and um, grew so fast over the past decade, a lot of people have started to um, flow to it and wanting to be part of it, become ESG professionals. And especially now, I see a lot of this market growth in the last couple of years and a lot of young people, a lot of just, you know, university graduates want to be part of this. And they're on the learning curve. A lot of them are on the learning curve and we're really missing professionals with a lot of experience. And then if people don't get it quite right um, on the first try, somebody goes right away and screams greenwashing. I don't think this is intentional. It's just people learning and doing their best. and, and that how to do ESG. And it will take time again, but it doesn't mean it shouldn't be done or that it's some evil plot to deceive the society. I just don't think it's true. So <laughs> I'm a little bit bashing the term greenwashing here, but um, that's how well, I see it. I think in some ways what you just said previously relates in the sense that it's taken a while for CFOs to realize within companies that they need to take responsibility and be involved in making this transition happen. And they still are stewards of the current business, but they need to start dedicating real money and budgets to it's going to take investments for the future to move them to something that's more sustainable. and. I find that in the beginning, it wasn't so much, we didn't see the CFOs thinking that ESG, that was the sustainability chief operating officer and doing his numbers on impact that we're doing. It, they didn't, it took them a while to make that shift where they realized that the responsibility of how it's not greenwashing and you are really planning for the future lies right with the C-suite of the CFO and the CEO. I mean, that there have been, to be honest, and we know there have been a few true greenwashing incidents and scandals where yes. people did forge the numbers and then did some wrongdoing there. And again, these are just perverse incentives. When, when the ESG starts to matter financially, there will be always some individuals who will try to, exactly. try to do those things. And it's not, I don't think it's unique to ESG. Oh. Anything when you see somebody opportunistic who is trying to take advantage of some gaps in the markets that would benefit them financially, that will always be there. It's human nature. But I don't think the whole field should be bashed so much for these few instances. And people who genuinely try their best to do good um, in the ESG field should... should uh, feel under attack for those things, but 
nevertheless, it's happening. And I look forward to seeing how, how this field responds overall to this criticism. Because in a way, like I was saying, it's, it's probably a good thing. Agreed. I read something on the IFC website, and I wonder if you know about this. There were a couple of message lines on there, and one of the message lines was climate adaption is everybody's business. Can you tell me about uh, climate adaption? I'm not sure exactly what that is. Climate adaptation? Adaptation, yeah. So you've got two sides to mitigating climate change or managing climate change, I should say, rather. So one is try to do less harm and try to cure the impacts of climate change, which is reducing emissions and then trying to fund more renewable energy and then the um, carbon capture technologies, a lot of these things, all trying to reduce the GSG and then the associated impacts. So this is the mitigation part of it. But the second, the second part of it and a big part of it is the adaptation part. Because we're already in the, in the climate change, in the midst of it, and we're seeing and feeling the impacts more and more. The reality is such that some of them are already here and some of them are going to become more severe. So the funding that goes to adapting to these changes and these impacts of climate change that are already happening Strengthen your infrastructure and, and um, build new infrastructure that's climate resilient and uh, invest in communities to help them withstand the impact of climate change. There's a lot of different facets to how countries and communities can adapt to the impact of climate change. So this is what this climate adaptation is about. And okay. it also it requires really significant investment as far with what is being done for the mitigation portion of it. Which is partially what has just been so monumental the bills that have passed in recent weeks. I mean, you've seen this in the UK recently. I, mean, I think it was on the news. It's happening more in developing countries, but now there as well. We've just seen this summer how all these news about roads melting in the UK mm-hmm. because uh, the infrastructure there is not built for this kind of temperatures. God. So how, how do you adapt to that? How do you change? Do you build new roads? What do you do? So <laughs> these, are the, these are the questions requiring investment. Yeah. Huge. Slightly different topic. And we talked about this when we were introducing ourselves. I'm curious if you have any experience with this. So we work with corporations and helping them define their corporate brand, if you will. And a part of that is helping them articulate their core beliefs, their values. And then there's behaviors and actions and mindsets that go along with that. And this is and should be a fundamental driver of decisions and actions people take in this whole world of sustainability. Do you work with companies and have you experienced a company's purpose and seeing them live their values? Is that something that you come across in your line of work when you're talking to companies about finance, etc. Yes, I mean it's part of the message that we usually have for companies and financial institutions alike. I, mean, I work more with the financial institutions, but by extension, also we work with companies. And, um, and yes, this is the core message. And living the values is something that we see as really critical to achieving their ESG goals. We were just discussing with you how transformational leadership is critical right. for any company to succeed and being more sustainable. So 
it starts with the values. It starts with setting your goals. It starts with knowing what you want to achieve and where you're going. And without this leadership, I think the change within the company cannot start. Yeah. As a professional, I've been advocating a lot for what we call senior management support and um, senior management leadership within companies and uh, within boards as well. So this is now something very popular. The new term that is used by investors for this kind of thing. We've been doing this for years with our clients. For, for years, for decades, we've always engaged with all of our clients, all of our companies very closely. Companies and governments like, um, if you think of the World Bank, to advocate, to engage, to advocate for sustainability in a very strong way. And now I believe this term has been also used by investors. And now engagement, engagement by investors with their investee companies is something that's been made in a profession. So now you see engagement managers and engagement directors at major investors. And it's been sort of professionalized because I think investors see the value of working more closely with their clients to, to advocate for change. I, again, like I haven't seen this happening for a long time, but it's been only the last two or three years that this engagement has come in the forefront of the vocabularies of the investors. And again, it's a very positive and I'm really glad to see that's happening. When you have... I look at it and like, okay, that's what I've been doing all my career. And yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's, it's been realized how important that is. But do you think some that of that shift is being of people being less or being more willing to be more long-term than short-term? I mean, both, it's troubling when leaders within companies are, I mean, like, for instance, a tenure in, of a CEO in the United States, it's like, five to seven years at the top end. And with governments, I imagine you have a lot of challenges with governments changing over too. What do you think helps? Well, codifying that the institutional memory is one thing that does help, that we see that it helps. But to be completely honest, I've never, I must this question a lot and I have to ponder this question a lot in my work as well. Because we see people changing, we see new people coming in, and the short-termism is maybe a little bit of part of human nature as well. So I don't know if I have a magic bullet here for you, but mm-hmm. just like moving forward and trying to create this institutional memory and the like meta-institutional memory, if you will, just that goes above one single corporation, one single financial institution, creating this collective mind, if you will, and trying to keep it alive somehow. That's the only way I see of doing that. And in a way, it's been successful. But like I said, I don't think this magic bullet honestly exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's just who we are as humans. The research, what research have you been interested in that showed that sustainability has really been good for people's businesses and governments? Is there anything that stands out to you? Well, I'm not able to recommend anything specific (laughs) for various reasons, but um, a lot of good work has been done in the area of ESG materiality. And I think this is what's affecting the situation that we've been just discussing with you, how ESG Mm -hmm. can become real. Because it's that concept of materiality, it's that concept that researches and proves that ESG really is financially significant. That research, I think it was 
one of the cornerstones for the industry to snowball in the recent years. I think that that's been one of the major contributors towards this, this kind of research. And that underpinned a lot of things, that a lot of innovation that has gone into design of ESG products and different kinds of financial instruments that go into this now, bonds and new ways of you know, stock selection and a lot of different methodologies that came out of it. It's, it's what I think influenced the market a lot hmm. recently. I'm going to ask a different question here. We talk to small and mid-sized companies often who are first-time reporters just developing sustainability strategies, looking forward to disclosure. What advice would you give them? How should they think about their sustainability strategy? I think it starts from within, from within the company. We were just discussing how internal change probably needs to come first before they think of reporting. So maybe just evaluate where you are internally and uh, set goals of where you want to be before you start reporting and then try to get there. (laughs) Because you might just shoot yourself in the foot if you don't make that first internal step first before starting putting out reports. Because sometimes I look at, at some of the reporting and I can see between the lines of what's really happening inside. Because you can, like, when you have enough experience, you can read between the lines and then the where things have been slightly forced or slightly just not done well sometimes, to be honest. And you can see that. It really shows. So starting with an internal effort and before going into reporting would really be beneficial. Interesting. Yeah, no, I completely, I love your, I love your answer because the work we do, it starts to be very, we start with being very introspective about what's really within What's the heart and soul of the company? And so, yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, big question. It's 10 years from today. We are having another podcast with you. What are we talking about 10 years from today? I hope we'll all be here 10 years from today. (laughs) (laughs) Us too. (laughs) Well, I hope we can be talking about some breakthroughs because if we don't make them now, I think climate change is going to get us to be quite straightforward. Yeah. So 10 years from now, hopefully we're going to be talking about how a few brave souls, maybe more than a few brave souls have changed the world and got to that turning point from which it all got better. That's at least my hope. Yeah. 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 Or the devastation that the, the crisis that everyone will just be reacting to rather than innovating for. I can see it that way too. But um, I hope there are those brave souls out there and that they will even be able to, if they get the momentum going enough and show the results in a financially rewarding way for investors, I hope that the tide will turn even more so with some of the huge government entities in the world who really aren't doing their part, I hope. (laughs) Thank you, Ekaterina. Thank you so much for your time. This has been very enlightening and enjoyable. And I hope we can stay in touch with you and have some sort of follow-up maybe a year from now or so. Sure, I enjoyed the conversation as well. 
Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.